When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Did you know we have a brand new pale blue women's tea in the Sisters-in-Law merch store? You can go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now. They're going fast. We are all wearing ours and loving them. Today, we'll be discussing big developments with the January 6th committee, including the pleading laying out crimes by Trump, and the first guilty plea of seditious conspiracy to a Department of Justice indictment. The interview with a jury foreperson in the case against the killers of Ahmad Arbery, and the DOJ appointing a special team on international sanctions. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to all those topics, I wanted to ask each of you, I'm sure you all watched the State of the Union address, and I just wonder what was your reaction the strongest to? What what was your takeaway from the State of the Union? Kim, do you want to start? Well, I don't know if it was my strongest reaction, but the thing that I remembered the most was the reaction of Justice Stephen Breyer when the president uh, gave him a shout out uh, for his <laughs> retirement. Um, he was just so genuine delight, genuinely delighted. You know, I think in our politically divided and culturally divided and in every way divided culture right now. Um, there's There are rarely those type of moments that you see a genuine show of emotion that really I, I can't imagine anybody not being moved by. Uh, and that was one of those moments. So I hope it landed for everyone like that. Um, what about you, Barbara? Yeah, it was, I thought he was adorable. And you know, what I admired, Kim, was you, you were on Twitter and you demanded a meme. You said, I, I demand immediately I yeah. uh, a meme. I need a gif. Yeah, I need a gif. I need a gif of, uh, of uh, Justice Breyer reacting to uh, J- President Biden's yes. comments at the State of the Union. And like within minutes, they were up, right? Which is great. <laughs> exactly. And now it's become such a gif. It's, uh, it's adorable. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was actually watching it on a plane. I was returning from a trip to Oregon where we were visiting our son, uh, wonderful trip. Um, and so it was fun to watch it on a plane because, uh, you could see it was on the screen of, uh, many other people along with, you know, uh, other action movies and things like that, that were being watched at the same time. But, um, you know, it's, I think the state of the union is a really important moment when Americans come together. Um, it's in some ways, it's sort of like the Oscars for the political class, you know, they all walk in and it's, you know, this, and you can sort of spot them like, oh, there's, uh, the Supreme court justices and here comes the cabinet and, um, I, I, I just really like seeing, um, the women I think, uh, who, who I find inspirational. One in particular, I find inspirational is energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm. You know, she comes from Michigan. She's a former assistant U S attorney in uh, my former office at the U S attorney's office for the Eastern district of Michigan. She was our state's attorney general and governor. And I think she's just doing wonderful work as the energy secretary with a lot of, uh, you know, um, electric, electric vehicles and clean energy. So I love seeing her walk in. And I also was inspired to see Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi standing behind the president presiding. You know, it's just such a different look from the look we saw, you know, d- d- decades ago when it was only only white men could, you know, stand before us in that way. How about you, Joyce? Do you have any reaction to it? Barb, you just actually, we had the same one. For me, it was about women. I loved Biden's speech. I thought it was a good speech. I thought he made a lot of important points. But I focused on four women in particular. Um, Like you, I focused on someone from my native state. As President Biden was walking in, I noticed that he stopped and spoke for a moment with Terry Sewell, who's not my congresswoman, but the congresswoman who represents Selman and parts of Birmingham. And I loved seeing her energy and that strong representation for Alabama. Sometimes we're downplayed in the media. 
Um, we do have that one wonderful, smart representative who always makes me feel good. And like you, I loved seeing Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris sitting behind Joe Biden. It was the end of the old boys network in so many ways. Um, these two strong, powerful women. Kamala Harris is being lambasted in the press and called not competent to deal with the, the crisis uh, in Eastern Europe. And I would just defy anyone who studied her career and watched how skillful she is to maintain that. I'm looking forward to her work in that area. But, you know, the final woman that I focused on, there was this moment early in the speech where the Ukrainian ambassador, I bet you 10 days ago, nobody could have named her, and she's introduced and she stands up and everyone, you know, she gets a standing ovation. There's warm regard for her and her country. I thought it was really moving and really interesting that Ukraine's ambassador to the United States is is a woman. So for me, I agree with all three of you. I was delighted at the display of emotion by Justice Breyer because we so seldom see people in politics ever showing their true feelings. And it was so genuine that it was wonderful. I was delighted at seeing all the women and the images of that, including, I would have mentioned, of course, the ambassador from Ukraine, who brought tears to my eyes as she stood and was touching her heart um, because the tragedy that's going on there is so amazing. Um, I think that was next to my favorite, uh, maybe not my favorite, but was the genuine times that there was actually bipartisan support and standing ovations for the president that wasn't just the Democrats standing up. There were times when Republicans, too, stood up. And that's what we need to get back to in this country is a time of bipartisanship and true regard for the amazing job that President Biden has done in bringing the world together against a madman who is, uh, without provocation, attacking a democracy. So I thought it was a, a overall just a terrific thing to see any show of bipartisanship and agree with all of you on the others. So let's get right to our topics. And our first one is a big one about all the events before, during, and after January 6th, the Eastman pleading and seditious conspiracy plea. Joyce, take it away. The January 6th committee continues to be hard at work. The headline story for this week is the pleading the committee filed in litigation in California over emails they're trying to get from a lawyer named John Eastman. Jill, can you remind us of who Eastman is, why he's important, and why the committee wants these emails? Eastman is such an interesting character. He has been a key legal advisor to Trump about the election, although there's some question as to whether he actually has ever been retained as a lawyer, so he may not actually have attorney-client privilege as a lawyer. Um, he is the one who wrote a memo outlining a coup and how to overturn the election. He spoke at the January 5th uh, pre-attack on the Capitol uh, grounds. And he also has refused to testify before the January 6th committee claiming the Fifth Amendment. Now he's refusing to turn over documents. And he opened a Pandora's box by saying, well, there just is no evidence that this is relevant to anything. And so the answer from those seeking those documents is, you want evidence, we'll give you evidence. And that's where we are now. Um, he's a former professor and dean at Chapman, um, a, a school where I spoke while he was there with uh, John Dean and Mardian, who was one of the defendants in the Watergate case, his, his lawyer. He's um, very active in the Federalists. He's chairman of the National Organization for Marriage, which is anti-same-sex marriage. He's the founding director of another uh, very conservative think tank, and um, he is an unsuccessful candidate for the U.S. House and for the Attorney General of California, who clerked for Justice Thomas and for a retired federal judge, Ludic, who has criticized Eastman's legal position and supports Judge Jackson's nomination. 
So he left Chapman after a hundred of his colleagues um, urged that action be taken because of his positions in this. And he is also being looked at for disbarment. You know, it's really interesting. Typically, when you're hired, you have some conversations with the client. And in the course of the ongoing representation, you have some conversations with the client. So I suspect, Kim, that that was part of the topic that the committee wanted to discuss with Eastman when he came in to speak with them. But during his testimony, he took the Fifth Amendment 146 times. He can't do that with the emails because the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply to them. So now he's trying, as Jill pointed out, to use the attorney-client privilege to avoid turning over the emails. What are the arguments the committee makes for why he shouldn't be successful? And do you think that they're right? Is there a Fifth Amendment privilege here? Yeah, so uh, the attorney-client privilege, as our listeners know, if they listen to the show, uh, really covers any... um, conversations between an attorney and uh, that attorney's clients. Um, But there are a lot of issues here. Jill hints at the first one. It requires actual legal representation. And I'm also not sure that that has been established in this case, that there was an actual attorney-client relationship. But even if there were, the the attorney-client privilege, first of all, it isn't some like ironclad, super strong thing. It's really easy to pierce to the point that, as I've mentioned before, when I used to practice law, and anyone, any, you know, someone would just knock on the door for a minute to ask me a question or, you know, the person who would come into our office to walk, to water the plants walked into a room and I was talking to my client, I would say, hold on for a minute. And I would wait because it could be pierced so easily. If anyone else hears it, if anyone else is a part of that conversation, it can break very easily. And it certainly does not apply when the attorney and the client are uh, actively plotting to break the law. That's called the crime fraud exception. And that's exactly what the January 6th committee is saying. It's like, okay, even if there is a privilege here, which we're not saying that it is, uh, it wouldn't because the emails that we're seeking go straight to uh, the uh, investigation into what Donald Trump and others are doing. Everything from obstructing obstruction of justice, which is a crime for uh, a um, interrupting an official proceeding on January 6th, to conspiracy, to defraud the federal government, to engaging in other sorts of fraud. These are crimes. And if you helped with that, uh, then you are not protected by any privilege at all. So, Barb, we discussed this a little bit last week, but you sort of had your profit hat on. You wrote this great piece for Just Security where you laid out this argument for indicting Trump that's essentially the same argument the committee uses to support this position that Kim has staked out, that the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege is in play here. And given that this pleading is a response in a civil case where the committee is trying to get access to the emails, trying to enforce compliance with a subpoena, not a criminal indictment. Do you think that they did a good job with with the argument? And maybe more importantly, do you think that this is a hint that there's a criminal referral to come from the committee to the Justice Department for someone named Donald Trump? <laughs> I do. Yes and yes. Um, as you say, Joyce, the standard for uh, the crime fraud exception in this context, in the civil case, is simply a uh, evidence sufficient to make a good faith showing that a crime may have been committed. So it's a very low standard. And that would simply trigger uh, an in-camera review. That means um, in private review by the court to look at all these communications and then make a decision uh, as to whether the exception applies. So that's a pretty low standard. To charge someone with a crime, the Justice Department would have to believe that it is probable that the evidence is sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction, you know, including the fact that you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to a jury of 12 people unanimously. So much, much higher standard there. But they do pull together in one place all of the evidence, as I did in my memo, by the way, you're welcome, Wait, January 6th committee. Wait, can I just committee. say, I love that you went <laughs> A to Y, right? You had A through Y, your arguments for guilt, and you couldn't get a Z. I mean, come on, McQuaid, that's disappointing. Yeah, you know, well, it just shows, <laughs> Joyce, the discipline. I wasn't, you know, faking it just to get to Z. I, uh, there were precisely 25 facts, and I listed them all there. But, um, 
In the same way, this filing lists those, I think, very powerful facts and brings into view what this criminal theory would look like. So first, they identify the same crimes I identified, which are obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, and importantly, um, they talk about you know what Trump did, I don't think, is very much in dispute. He pressured Mike Pence to try to get him to overturn the election. The really key question is whether he had criminal intent. That is, did he know that the election was not stolen? Did he know that the election was fair and square? Did he know that when he said election fraud, it was a lie? And that's the thing that can be so difficult to prove because you have to prove a negative. But in that filing, as in my um, model prosecution memo, there's actually a pretty large collection of evidence now that has been piling up as the committee has done their investigation that they've been gathering. And, you know, just some of it, um, the cybersecurity uh, head of DHS tells him shortly after the election, you know, makes a public announcement, no fraud. William Barr, his handpicked attorney general, says publicly, um, no fraud. His successors at the Justice Department repeatedly say, we have investigated all of these uh, irregularities that you've talked about, and we have found nothing there. Uh, the Secretary of State of the state of Georgia tells him there is no fraud. Uh, an internal campaign memo did some investigation and reported there was no fraud. Um, 60 judges in court cases rejected claims of fraud. And so it goes on and on and again on. And finally, one judge, the one who suspended Rudy Giuliani's law license, says, in fact, there's not one scintilla of evidence that there is fraud. And so all of that together, at some point, is sufficient evidence from which a jury could conclude that there was never any fraud. Donald Trump just made it up. And so to say he believed there was fraud um, is just not plausible. You know, there's a jury instruction that talks about willful blindness. If there's a high probability that a fact is true, you can't simply ignore that fact and pretend you don't see it and you don't know that it's true. So I don't know if we've crossed that threshold yet, but as the committee continues its work, at some point it may. And then, of course, the Justice Department has tools unavailable to the committee, which is the use of the grand jury to put people under oath with penalty of, of jail if they don't testify. And that can be much more immediate than the clumsy process they have in Congress. And the ability to use search warrants to get a hold of these text messages and emails and other kinds of things. So I think at some point it is going to be impossible for the Justice Department to ignore this. And I'm not sure they are. I think I like to think they're investigating right now, Joyce Vance. You know, we don't see much in the way of signs of that, but it's hard to imagine that they aren't. And Barb, I love that you mentioned the willful blindness instruction. The way we used to like to explain that to juries in my office was we could say, you know, you can't be like an ostrich and just stick your head in the sand and ignore the truth. I am confident that if 12 jurors heard the evidence in this case, they would reach the conclusion that no one in Donald Trump's position legitimately believed that there had been fraud and that he had had the election stolen from him. The evidence is just so strong to the contrary. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what DOJ does and how Congress plays the rest of its hands, but so far so good. Um, I am really glad that the committee waited to file this brief until they had the opportunity to take advantage of, of your piece. So good on them for doing that. Uh, Jill, Eastman is also facing a probe, and you mentioned this, by the California State Bar. This is how lawyers are disciplined. We discipline ourselves. There's not an external mechanism. And so here it's up to the California State Bar to decide whether Eastman's conduct is something that should cause them to reconsider whether he's entitled to have a, a license to practice law. Do you think it's important, and will it go anywhere? You've got the bar expertise among the four of us. I think it's very important, and I think that one of the things we learned during Watergate was that a lot of lawyers were involved in those crimes. And as a result, a lot of new ethics rules were put into place. Here, um, a really impressive group has brought to the attention of the California Bar uh, investigating him, or has asked for the investigation, which they have now taken up. And I just want to name some of the people who wrote um, it included UC Berkeley's uh, law dean, Chemerinsky. It included Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe, two former governors, Republican Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey and Democrat Steve Bullock of Montana, retired California Supreme Court justices, two of them, 
Um, and it looks so obvious that people who really are paying attention to what the ethics of the legal profession must be felt that he had committed crimes while taking on the actions on behalf of President Trump. And I'm not saying that he was acting as Trump's lawyer, because that is, as Kim pointed out, that's in dispute. But they said lawyers, particularly those who represent elected and appointed officials, have a solemn duty to the public to advise their clients within the four corners of the law and to ensure that they do not allow themselves to become the tools by which those officials seek to undermine democratic uh, laws. And so that's why it's important, because this was a particularly heinous crime if it occurred, which was a coup and obstructing Congress from doing its duty and overturning the will of the people as expressed in their free vote. So this is a very important case, and I hope that the California investigation will reveal enough facts to take action against a lawyer who advises a president to do what this lawyer advised. Yeah, you know, Eastman's lawyer wrote a letter to the court in the Central District of California today advising them that his client has COVID. This is actually the second time he's symptomatic. So from the bottom of all of our hearts to John Eastman, we wish you a speedy recovery so you can face the consequences that you deserve from the January 6th committee and from the California State Bar. Um, Godspeed, Mr. Eastman. Uh Kim, the committee has been busy on other fronts this week, continuing to subpoena witnesses, and interestingly, including Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle. They've had to issue her a subpoena, which means that she wouldn't cooperate voluntarily. What do you think they're hoping to get from her? And realistically, given the timeline, do you think that they stand a chance? I mean, Steve Bannon, right, won't even face a trial until July. Mark Meadows, DOJ, has yet to make up its mind. Is she just going to blow this off? I mean, so I I would think so. I think the closer that they get to the inner circle of of Donald Trump and the Trump family, that the the less likely they will get anything out of these folks uh, short of trying to send them to jail in order to force them um, to do it. Uh, I I do believe that Kimberly Guilfoyle is uh, Don Jr.'s fiance. I think. Oh, I stand um, corrected. I didn't know that. Um, Yes. Uh, But but yes, I I just given, as you said, what we've seen with other witnesses and just the complete attempt to completely stonewall this the same way that they did to the Mueller investigation and uh, every impeachment investigation and everything else. I don't think she's going to cooperate. I don't think they'll get much out of her, but they have. She was there. We saw her there in that video that we've seen ad nauseum of her dancing during the uh, rally before the insurrection. So clearly she is a person who knew and was in the room uh, when some of these things are taking place. So I expected this subpoena, but I don't expect any effort to, to comply. Well, Barb, like you say, the process for enforcing congressional subpoenas is clumsy. I think Kim just laid out precisely how clumsy and ineffective it can be. What do you think the committee's endgame is at this point? We've heard that they've delayed plans to hold their public hearings until later in the spring. Do you think that they'll end up really managing to reel in some big fish here? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, um, I think they are wisely um, waiting until after the confirmation of uh, Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court that will get a lot of oxygen and airtime. And so I think they will wisely wait until that's over with. Hopefully that that gets through fairly quickly. But they have promised, you know, kind of this must-see TV, and they're talking about even doing it in the evening. Um, and Jill, I'd be curious to see how your thoughts about how this compares with Watergate. You know, I think an important part of what Congress does that's different from what we did at the Justice Department is uh, the court of public opinion matters very much. Uh, you know, in our work, um, you know, publicity didn't matter. We were really focused on the facts and the law and persuading a jury. Just 12 people is is what really mattered and following the law and using the rules of evidence and all those kinds of things. Whereas here, I think a big part of what they're trying to do is to convince the American people about what happened Um uh, on January 6th. You know, of course, they also want to find facts so that they can uh, enact important laws that might be necessary to prevent this from ever happening again. But helping to you know share the story with the American people, because there's still people who deny what happened on January 6th. There's still people who say Trump, uh, Trump uh, you know, the election was stolen from Biden, uh, Trump by Biden, um, that it was an ordinary tourist visit, that it was 
you know, Antifa and the FBI who are plotting to do this. So I think setting the record straight is a really important part of what they're trying to do here. And so what I think they're going to do, you know, I've talked to something like 550 witnesses. Uh, as you know, Joyce, from doing grand jury investigations, you talk to a lot of people who don't tell you a whole lot, or they might, you might spend five hours with them and they tell you 10 minutes of something that's useful. And so I think what they'll try to do is to package the greatest hits of what they have heard and then uh, have that play out the way then you would take the greatest hits from a grand jury and have them testify in court. And so I think what we'll hear is some very targeted testimony from some of the key witnesses about things to paint the picture of what really happened on January 6th. And I think it will be very powerful. I think there are a lot of people who don't have the bandwidth or the time to pay close attention the way we do uh, to all the details that have been uh, dribbling out of this investigation. And I think to see it all in one powerful presentation uh, is going to be an important moment for the committee. And ultimately, their decision will be whether to recommend legislation. They may make a re criminal referral, but I think with or without a criminal referral, the Justice Department has a responsibility to investigate this. Well, that sounds like a date for the sisters-in-law. I'm sure we'll all be watching it together and texting each other madly. Um, something to look forward to. And, and I do want to answer what Barbara said, because there is no question that the public hearings during Watergate made a difference. It made a difference to the believability of our indictment, to the willingness of the public to accept the crimes that were committed, because they heard the witnesses themselves. And you'll never get that in a grand jury or in a trial. So public hearings, essential. I can't wait for them to start. Well, last week we discussed the federal court conviction of the three men who killed Ahmad Arbery. They were convicted of violating his civil rights by killing him on account of his race while using a public road. And this week, Kim, I saw you post a tweet about one of the jurors in that case, uh, juror number 150, as he was known during the trial, Marcus Ransom. Uh, he was the four-person and the only African-American man on the jury. And after seeing your post, I read the article that you connected to, and it was powerful. What what struck you about this story? So, yes, I saw the New York Times profile um, of Marcus Ransom, who was the four-person uh, of that civil rights uh, violation trial, um, and we've li we'll link the piece in the show notes. You should really read it. But what struck me about it uh, is a couple of things. As uh, a black man, he was watching this evidence that if you watched any coverage of this trial, the things that the defendants have said uh, about black people are really repulsive. We couldn't repeat them here. And he said those weren't the things that were hardest for him because he's heard stuff like that his entire life. That in itself is tragic and heartbreaking, but I can understand it. He said what really got to him was the fact that the defendants did not seem to have any contrition, have any reaction to these things as they were being read, have any reaction to the family, um, and just did not seem to care uh, about any of it and how difficult that was. And I was also struck by the way he said um, that he cried uh, for the family, um, that he cried for uh, Ar uh, Ahmaud Arbery's family, that he uh, cried for other people's families, and that he also really felt for the families of the defendants, too, that this was just a complete tragedy from beginning to end. Um, substantively, he said that it was not a problem. The jury didn't take that much time reaching a verdict that it seemed pretty clear. Uh, it took less than a day. Um, but I can relate to being on a, uh, in a place that's very high profile, something all about race. This entire trial was about race. And we expect jurors and everyone else, you know, to leave their, their experiences at the door, their biases at the door, this whole idea that you walk in with this clean slate and none of that affects you. We should not. That's impossible. Our lived experience certainly affects who we are, affects how we feel about things and affects how we are able to perceive justice. And I was really thankful to Marcus Ransom for being so honest about that. Um, after reading that piece, I have no doubt that he carried out his duties um, well and with honor, and I thank him for that service because I know how difficult it was. We need jurors like that in all our court systems, and it's important that 
we do have diverse juries. We do have people who are not expected to leave all their lived experiences at the door. I want to hear from the prosecutors about what you think about that. Yeah, well, being a juror is really a heavy responsibility. I think sometimes when people think about jury duty, they think about the time commitment. You know, oh, I'm going to miss work or it's going to take away from my personal time, my family time. But I think they're not also thinking about the really heavy emotional toll uh, and the enormous responsibility it is to hold someone's liberty in your hands. Jill, you've been involved in a lot of trials. Have you ever given thought to the way that jurors are affected by the cases that they listen to and decide? So that was such an interesting question, Barbara. And it really made me think about how perhaps callous I was, Mm -hmm. that the trials that I've been involved in, particularly as a prosecutor, have all been against really hardened criminals, whether it be the president and his men or the mafia. And so I never thought about either the consequences for them or their families or for any tough choices the jury was going to have to make because the evidence was strong and these were bad people. Um, I did have a personal experience where I had a fellowship from the EEC, the the EU, um, and part of that included witnessing and interviewing people involved in the Klaus Barbie trial. He was known as the Butcher of Lyon. He was one of the last people tried for the Holocaust uh, crimes. And I cried watching the testimony in that case. And I can only imagine how anybody having to actually judge that could take in that kind of evidence. And that's the same kind of evidence I think that you would see in the George Floyd case, in the Breonna Taylor case, in the recent reckless uh, case that I think we'll talk about later. Um, And so, yes, it's now making me think about that emotional toll on the jury, not just how hard it is to listen to the facts and pay attention and then get instructed on the law, but on the fact that this is, some of these cases are quite emotional. Um, And I want to add to one thing that Kim said, which is the thing that struck me the most about the response, um, the, the thing that struck me the most in what Juror Ransom said was how he was more upset about the inhumanity that the defendant showed as Ahmad Arbery lay dying and bleeding from their inflicted wound and they offered him no help. He might have been saved if they had acted appropriately, if they had just accidentally done this, but they didn't. They were evil. And that really got to him. And it, hearing that really got to me as well. Yeah. You know, I know um, television and movies are filled with these like crime procedurals with uh, trials of murder. My mother, uh, my elderly mother loves to read murder mysteries, uh, you know, and, and finds them to be page turners and en- enjoyable. But, you know, in real life, crimes about murder and violent crimes are are really, really tough. Uh, and people who are prosecutors or police officers, it's tough for those of us. But, you know, we chose this line of work and we've had some training and experience uh, to brace ourselves for this kind of work. When you have a jury that comes in and has to see these, uh, you know, autopsy photos and hear testimony about, you know, angle of entry wounds and things like that and blood spatter evidence, um, you know, it's it's really deeply disturbing. Uh, Joyce, I'll, I'll ask you, I know, you know, Marcus Ransom said that he cried during the verdict and that when he went home at night, he prayed for everyone involved in the trial, including the defendants. Have you seen that before, jurors crying, even though they have returned uh, a verdict to convict? Or do you think that was something special about this case? And, and do you think we ask too much of jurors to put them through this kind of trauma? You know, I think it's such an important question to ask. I don't think that this is something that we've ever really talked about before on the podcast, and I'm glad to have a chance to discuss it. And I'm grateful to Mr. Ransom for his jury service. I think everyone's right when they say that he's exactly the kind of juror that we hope to have in this system. One thing that I learned as a prosecutor sitting not just in my own cases watching the verdict comes in, but watching verdicts come in for people from across my office, you know, sitting in there sometimes pretty frequently— 
A happy jury never convicts. If the jurors walk back into the courtroom and they're laughing and they're joking, you should expect an acquittal in a criminal case because jurors appreciate how serious these situations are. And even when you've got a case that doesn't involve violent crime, jurors appreciate that they may be about to take someone away from family members who love them. You know, they may have committed crimes, whether it's theft or selling drugs or or even more heinous crimes. That person still has a family who loves them. Um, And if the defense has done their job at trial, the jury understands that that family will miss their loved one. So I've seen jurors take this with great seriousness. I have seen jurors cry before when a verdict was read, although not very frequently. Um, And so I'm struck by the amount of grace, frankly, that Mr. Ransom showed. What really struck me in this piece was how he looked for weeks for just one sign of remorse in the eyes of the defendants. And he never found it. And to me, that's just, that's brutal. It's staggering that there was no remorse. For him as a black man who who lived there, who could have run through that neighborhood or found himself at the mercy um, of these three criminals, I can't imagine what a burden it must have been on his soul and probably will continue to be on his soul. But, you know, I'm going to stake out a position here and just say, I don't think we ask too much of jurors. I think we live in a system where we've chosen very deliberately to let jurors decide what the facts are in a criminal case, to decide whether a defendant is guilty or not. Lawyers will be familiar with this saying that the judge is the judge of the law, but the jury, the jury is the judge of the facts. We let them decide. And we could, frankly, live in a very different system, right? We could live in a system where prosecutors decided who was guilty, judges could decide, police could decide. We could have a king who gets to decide who's guilty and who gets to go free. But our Constitution says, nope, you're entitled to a jury, and that jury should consist of your peers, and those are the people who will pass on on your guilt or your innocence. So, sure, it's hard. Sometimes it's crushing, like I'm sure it was in this case, but it's a constitutional choice that we make to have a system of government like the one we live in, and I think that means we're all obliged to serve even when it's tough. Nothing, nothing bothered me more than hearing people say, oh, I don't want to serve, you know, like I need to go play tennis. I mean, you would hear people whispering out in the hall, it's going to interfere with my tennis game this week. And I would want to just sort of take them and say, do you not appreciate what this is? This is one of your most important opportunities to be an American citizen and to give life and meaning to the Constitution. All right. Well, dear listeners, you've uh, heard Joyce Vance throw down the challenge. Um, We hope you will, when you get your summons to serve on jury duty, you will answer the call. I've heard it said that um, the jury system is the worst possible way to decide cases except for every other system. We also got a decision from another jury this week uh, to acquit the police officer who fired 10 shots into the apartment of Breonna Taylor. He was charged not with any crimes for his conduct toward her, mind you, but wanton endangerment of her neighbors by blindly firing his gun through a window and sliding glass door into her apartment where the bullets went through the walls and into the apartment next door. Uh, let me just ask any of you, did you did this verdict strike you as uh, as appropriate? Um, you know, he, uh, he testified that when he heard the gunshot going off, um, he thought uh, that it was uh, gunshots of the suspect. And so he just started firing and fired 10 shots. Um, let me just go around and, and ask your reactions to it. Kim, what was your reaction to that verdict? No, I don't think it was appropriate, but it was expected um, in this case. Just the fact that this case was brought not with respect to Breonna Taylor in itself says enough. And I think we saw with the Kim Potter trial, you can think something and be mistaken, but that doesn't mean that your actions particularly, I mean, firing 10 shots, um, that doesn't mean that that excuses or ought to excuse your actions or, or make you be free of culpability. Yeah. And he was fired for violating department policy for doing that. You're not supposed to shoot blindly. You know, he shot through a window and a sliding glass door into the apartment without knowing what it was he was aiming at. Uh, What about you, Jill? Do you have any reaction to that verdict? Yes, I think it was a terrible verdict. I think that, first of all, he could have just as easily killed one of the police officers there because he was blindly shooting in. He didn't know where anyone was. And he didn't have blueprints. 
and ignored the fact that there was obviously a door next to Breonna Taylor's door, which was an apartment next to hers. And so that the bullets, as happened, actually entered that apartment and terrorized uh, a mother, child, and, and a man in the apartment. Yeah, he's very lucky so he didn't hit anybody. It's, yeah. well, it's a miracle, the people really. who did Yeah, it is yeah. a miracle, <laughs> and that's why it is reckless and why I cannot imagine a jury finding that his action wasn't reckless and was done. You know, obviously we've eliminated the fact that it was a no-knock warrant, which we are trying to eliminate around the country. Um, and the attorney general would not let the grand jury bring murder charges for the murder of Breonna Taylor. Uh, but the testimony was clear that it was reckless and he should have been convicted. Joyce, you have any views on that? So, you know, under Kentucky law, you commit the crime of wanton endangerment when you wantonly, so that's one thing the government has to prove, that it was wanton, not justified, engages in conduct that creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another. And to be guilty, you have to do so under circumstances that manifest extreme indifference to the value of human life. So something that really troubles me with this wanton endangerment charge is that Brianna's family maintains that she didn't actually die immediately and that the police officers failed to render assistance to her when they should have after the shooting. So I suspect that the fight was, as you described, Barb, over whether he just sort of had a moment and thought there was shooting or not. I didn't listen to the trial. I didn't hear all the evidence. So I I really hesitate to pass on whether the jury got it right. But something that sticks out to me in the facts here is that she was alive and no one rendered aid. And that's a piece of evidence that I think could have suggested that the police officers here, whether they violated the wanton endangerment statute, certainly failed to fulfill their duty as police officers to people that they're sworn to serve. And, and you know, I am actually okay with get, with police getting qualified immunity for times when they make split-second reasonable decisions in difficult circumstances. I think that's okay. But I think the flip side of that is that we need to have better laws in this country that hold police officers accountable for doing the right thing. And I suspect the problem here is less with the facts in the case and more with the fact that we simply don't have laws that hold police officers appropriately accountable when they engage in this kind of conduct. Yeah, and I also think that the law has some problems because, you know, what somebody does in a split second, the law is very um, lenient about. You know, there's an instruction that says something like, keep in mind how difficult it is to be a police officer and to have to make split second decisions under rapidly evolving circumstances when, when you know, your life is in danger and you're trying to protect the danger of uh, the lives of members of the public. You know, all that is is very uh, favorable to law enforcement officers. And, you know, I suppose it should be because we want to protect them from making bad decisions in split second moments. But all the things that led up to that moment were so avoidable. Um, you know, the no knock warrant in this instance, and I'm not a believer that they should be completely abolished, but I think they should be very rare where a judge makes a finding that is absolutely necessary. You know, if you've got Osama bin Laden on the other side of the door, I don't think you should have to knock. But in almost every other circumstance, you know, like this one, it's a routine, you know, drug dealer is is who they think they're uh, going after. Um, You know, I don't think there's a reason for no knock. Why is it done in in the dark of night? Most warrants are done during daylight hours um, with a knock, knock and announce. Um, they used a flashbang. Flashbangs create this sense of chaos, and they're used sometimes to disarm uh, and confuse a suspect. But my gosh, if you use a flashbang in my house, I am going to flip out. I'm going to think that there's some really scary intruder there, and that leads to all kinds of dangerous things. So I think all of the things leading up to this is what led to these tragic results. And that's where, Joyce, I think that this accountability needs to come into play, uh, the accountability for those poor decisions that put these officers in this terrible situation where they made horrible decisions uh, in, uh, in an instance. Yeah, bingo. I think that's exactly right.
You know, I know we are all horrified by the images of just the human rights disaster and the humanitarian disaster that's unfolding uh, as Russia continues its attacks on Ukraine. Um, the U.S. and its Western allies are doing what they can to stop it. Uh, and while our hearts go out to the people of Ukraine, we thought we'd take a little time to explain to our listeners uh, a little bit about sanctions, which is uh, one of the levers that the U.S. Uh, and and uh, fellow Western countries have to try to stop it. So first, I want to start with you, Jill. What is the authority that the United States has to impose sanctions, and to whom are they targeted? The U.S. president has uh, sanction power unilaterally because Congress gave him that power in a 1970s law called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. It says that the president has the authority to impose sanctions sweeping economic sanctions to deal with any unusual and extraordinary threat abroad. And Congress did have the power, but they sort of were afraid of using it, it seems, and ceded the power basically to the president until during the Trump administration, they actually passed a sanctions imposition because they were afraid that President Trump wouldn't punish Russia for what it had done in connection with the 2016 election. Um, So that's where the power comes from. And right now they're targeting uh, a a group of companies and banks and oligarchs within Russia. They have imposed really, really sweeping, devastating economic sanctions. They have gone after um, things that are originally intended to be preventative. They were hoping it would stop the invasion, but are now really being acknowledged as being punishment for the horror that has been inflicted on the country of Ukraine. Um, the, The sanctions go against banks. They go against defense companies. They go against the oil companies. They have now expanded to freezing and seizing and forfeiting assets of the oligarchs. And by the way, it's believed that much of Putin's money is held by other oligarchs. So by naming them, they are actually hurting the assets of Putin himself. Um, And this has been something that Biden has very skillfully managed to make a universal, almost completely universal uh, action by the global community. Uh, the SWIFT system, which is essential to any financial transaction, has been uh, cut off from the Russians. Uh, so it's basically those groups. It's banks, military companies, gas companies, oligarchs, um, people who are close to Putin. Um, yeah. And so not just, you know, just people who are known to be his friends who support him. They are being sanctioned. And we've seen the seizure of a mega giant yacht. Um, there's talk that maybe people, people's homes outside of Russia will be seized and that their children will be expelled from the private schools they're in around the world. And it is having an impact. But unfortunately, Putin doesn't seem to be listening to the oligarchs who are saying this is bad. Stop it. So we know that the DOJ has created a special teams unit to crack down on these oligarchs. Barb, I want to turn to you. How will this uh, special teams unit work? Can it work? I mean, one thing that we have seen lots of coverage about how these oligarchs, as Jill says, they're going after all their assets, but they're hiding their assets. They're moving their yachts to places that are out of reach. They're they're uh, laundering their money. They're trying to keep the government from getting it. I'm sure you've had some experience with trying to find money from people who are trying to hide it. How do you think the DOJ does that? Yes, and it can be very difficult. As President Biden announced in his State of the Union, he has formed a task force, asked the Justice Department to form a task force to try to um, identify these assets and seize them. So one of the things that people do when they're subject to sanctions is they try to evade them. Uh, The the sanctions say that... um, Russian oligarchs, Russian interests can't use U.S. banks, for example. And so they'll try to hide their money as being of Russian origin and try to launder them through other kinds of people, um, you know, get third parties, proxies uh, to be the the account holders, um, invest them in um, real estate, 
you know, there's some allegation that this is um, how Trump was able to sell a lot of his real estate in Florida and New York is by um, letting Russian oligarchs overpay for um, for real estate and, you know, condominiums and buildings and things like that. Um, and so they have put things in, you know, shell companies and uh uh, proxy accounts and other kinds of things. And so what the prosecutors try to do is identify those assets. They do work with banks. Banks file these things known as suspicious activity reports, SARs, that identify things that look suspicious to them. They file them with the government. The government reviews those. So that's how they get their leads. And then they try to find where these assets are hidden. Sometimes they're within the United States in false names, and they can figure that out uh, through investigation, the use of subpoenas and looking through bank records and other kinds of things. They can see these transactions. Where it can be, get really difficult is when things are being held in offshore accounts. Um, we saw this in the Paul Manafort trial. He was getting paid from um, the oligarchs who hired him in offshore bank accounts that were in like the Seychelles and Cyprus and um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, you know, all these kinds of places. So there are many countries with whom the United States has treaties. They call them MLATs, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties. And through that process, Justice Department lawyers can reach out to their counterparts overseas and request documents and get them back. The only challenge is it takes a great amount of time to work through that process. So as a result, I would think that the Justice Department will have to prioritize to go after the biggest fish, uh, but they can do it. And I think it's great to see dedicated resources going after this because it, it can be the kind of thing that falls through the cracks when there are more urgent priorities because it takes a lot of time to get uh, this work done. But by dedicating people to focus solely on it, I think it can really help to put some teeth into the sanctions. And Joyce, you know, sanctions are meant to cause Russia economic pain, but they can also have some unintended consequences, um, both economically and with respect to things like human rights. How do you think the U.S. government and even the private sector can walk that fine line? It's definitely going to be more difficult than what we're seeing today. Right now, there's this immediate mood of support for Ukraine among the American public. But I think the economic consequences that we're about to see are going to test Americans' commitment to Ukraine. Um, that seems impossible right now, given the mood of the country. But I think we know it's inevitable. Uh, something that we all pay attention to is the price of gas. Oil prices are already skyrocketing on the risk that Russian oil stops being accessible in the West. Russia is the world's third largest oil producer. So Americans may um, ultimately have to face a decision about whether they're willing to pay a personal, a very real, albeit economic cost for support of Ukraine or not. And that will impact the leadership in the country, I, I think. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of World War II and Roosevelt, who had to use Lend-Lease when the mood in the country, when the public would not support active involvement in, in World War II. And so Joe Biden may find himself in a very difficult situation. I don't think it's difficult. I mean, I have to say I'm willing to pay more money for food or gas or what have you to support Ukraine. Yeah. I think as a country, we're going to have to worry about how that burden lands on people who have fewer financial resources. And of course, we have a Congress that notably refused to pass Build Back Better mm. when it could have helped people who live in poverty and people who paid a lot of money for childcare or other expenses. I think we're going to see all of these issues converge in a very unexpected way, and it'll be interesting to see what the impact uh, of that will be. And then I think the last thing we should focus on is that this war is not without cost to the Russian people. And so when we talk about human rights, yes, we see what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, it's really heartwarming to watch people getting off of trains in places like Poland and being greeted by people who want to take them into their, their homes. I mean, it's just really sort of heart-stopping to see that happening. People in Russia who were already under a lot of stress because of inflation are going to face renewed burdens because of this. And I suspect that's the whole reason we have sanctions. Ultimately, the question with sanctions is whether or not they can prompt some sort of a palace coup, maybe based on ongoing protests by the Russian people, and whether that might be one possibility for terminating this war and, and this attack uh, that will save the United States from getting directly involved in what could be a nuclear confrontation with Russia.
We all love getting listener questions, and we hope that you will keep them coming to us so that we can answer the things that are of real concern to you. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. And today's first question comes from Steve. He asks, if SCOTUS essentially eviscerates Roe versus Wade, how would passing a law to codify Roe change things? Couldn't the new law be challenged in court as being unconstitutional based on the ruling of the Mississippi case? Barb, do you want to take a hand at answering that? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it raises a lot of issues. I think, you know, the short answer is it depends. Um, if there were a statute that established a constitutional right to an abortion, then I don't think a decision in the Mississippi case, whatever that end up ends up being, if, if say it overturns Roe versus Wade, um, would matter because the the challenge of Roe is that it finds a right to an abortion within the language of the Constitution. There is not a statute that provides for it. So it could be. Now, I do imagine, Stephen, that immediately there would be challenges to a federal statute, you know, that Congress has exceeded its power under, say, the Commerce Clause or whatever it is, that this is a state's, a matter for states to legislate. Um, and I think the biggest obstacle probably is just getting such a law passed in the first place with the current makeup of Congress. You know, we've seen how difficult it has been for Joe Biden to pass, you know, some very basic uh, bills, build back better voting rights, other kinds of things, that it's hard to imagine that they could amass sufficient votes uh, to um, enact a, a law that would codify Roe. So, um you know, we'll have to take this one step at a time, maybe in the long view, but in the short term, I, I don't see this as being a fix for anything the court might do. And we've gone long today, so I'm going to take just one more question, and that's from Jane in Huntsville, Texas. Please clarify the conflict of interest created for Clarence Thomas because of his wife's activist involvement in topics that come before the Supreme Court. Where should the line be drawn? Can a justice be forced to recuse himself or herself, or is it purely their decision? Kim, go ahead. Yeah, the long and short of it is the, the, the latter. It is purely their decision. There are rules governing federal judges uh, in conflicts of interest that include um, when when they should recuse themselves from a case where they may have a conflict of interest based on something that their spouse or family member or something else is happening or stock, you know, stake in some stock, but that enforcement for that does not apply to the U.S. Supreme Court. So they're supposed to do it too, but there's no enforcement mechanism. Uh, it's up to their own honor system. So that's where we are. And, you know, you contrast that to the rules of ethics that federal judges who aren't Supreme Court justices have to comply with, and you get some really good results. My father-in-law was an 11th Circuit judge, and I think he sort of used this as an excuse to not go to events he didn't want to. He would say, oh, I can't go to that. There might be fundraising going on, you know. Imagine that gambling in Casablanca. But um, one of our judges actually did um, get his wrist slapped by a judicial um, ethics um, committee. And what he had done, it was one of our district judges. His wife wanted to go to a political political event. It was sort of an evening party. And he, in his words, he's a, a wonderful man. He squired her to the event so she wouldn't go alone, which he didn't think would be safe at night. And he was told, not even that. You can't even drive your, your wife over and be there. You've got to drop her off. Federal judges don't get to play any role in politics. You can't go to political events, speeches, or fundraisers. You know, don't do it again. And I think those are important standards, not just because it's important for the judges to live up to them, but because it's important for the public to have confidence in the judiciary to know that these requirements exist. As long as Supreme Court justices can do whatever, whatever you want, whatever they want, then I think the public's confidence is going to continue to really flag. And I want to just point out, it's really the appearance of impropriety even if they really aren't influenced by the fact that their spouse is an active member of an organization that's bringing a case to the Supreme Court, which would seem obvious conflict to me. But even if it isn't an actual conflict, the appearance is so terrible. You are right, Joyce. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine Banks. 
You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Meanwhile, go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our brand new women's t-shirt and please support this week's sponsors, Magic Spoon, Framebridge, Headspace, Function of Beauty, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps us and it helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. No, you know, I got an espresso maker because I think I told y'all this. I had discovered that Starbucks would deliver on Uber Eats and that had just become a very bad habit. So I finally bought myself an espresso maker and I'm learning to make espresso and I've got my burr grinder. It's very exciting. I'm not good with machines like that, but. I'm going to put in a plug for tea, which I don't normally drink and don't usually like. But when I was in California, I had dinner at Michelle Goodwin's house, and she made a combination of herbal tea mixed with Egyptian licorice tea. Hmm. And it was so... Sounds delightful. It was delightful. It was fabulous. And she gave me some of the bags of the licorice tea, and I've tried it just plain, and it's really tasty. So I have a new nighttime relaxing drink in this licorice tea. Oh, that's I'd I'd love to try that, uh, Jill. I've become a big tea drinker in my you know my quest yeah. to give up pop, which I have been successful Yay. at, by the way. Um, sparkling water and um, <laughs> Jim, that pops for you. Um, and tea, and uh, you know I, I really like herbal teas. It's a nice. I'm going to send you one, like Barb. My daughter subject. turned me on to one, and it's. <laughs> Hi, Brisbane. It's based on um, fur. Here.